0: This is Tommy's Outdoors 126. If you are listening to this podcast, there is a likelihood that you are an angler. And if you are an angler and you enjoy fishing in the sea, in the ocean, I would thoroughly recommend that you subscribe to Saltwater Anglers newsletter. In that newsletter, you will find a ton of information about fishing in the sea, uh, both with the lures and the beach fishing. Uh, The newsletter is made and run by my buddy Matt. Uh, who is a very, very experienced and seasoned sea angler. Um, So go ahead, click in the link in the description of the show, Saltwater Angler newsletter, uh, great source of knowledge. You can also visit his website, saltwaterangler.uk and find the blogs and some other resources there. And while you're there, you can go to his YouTube channel, like his YouTube channel, Saltwater Angler, that's how it's called. Uh, it's his main thing and again there's like a ton of knowledge, a ton of information about fishing in the sea and not only that, Matt is also putting a lot of effort into videography so you will not only learn but you will also enjoy watching his videos. So once again saltwaterangler.uk and the link to the Saltwater Angler newsletter is in the description of this show. And now let's talk about the episode. In this episode uh, my guest and your guest is Mark Weston. Mark spent two years living in Ukurewe, which is the biggest island on the biggest lake in Africa, Lake Victoria. And in this book, he describes life on Ukurewe. So in the first uh, part of the podcast, we talk about, you know, how it is to live there, about the social and economic situation on the island and how the locals are dealing with that. And about 20 minutes in, we get into discussing the ecological situation on the lake. What is interesting is how socio-economical situation of people living there are intertwined with the ecological situation on the lake. Uh, we talk about non-native species, we talk about fishing, overfishing, poaching, and uh, you know, there's no two ways about it, about the poverty. Very eye-opening um, discussion And if you enjoy this episode and if you enjoy those topics, uh, go ahead and buy Mark's book, The The Savior Fish, the title is The Savior Fish. And the link again is in the description of the show. And reminder, as usual, if you buy the book through the link provided in the description of the show, you will not only get yourself excellent book, you will also support this podcast because I will get a small commission uh, from each purchase, which obviously doesn't affect your price, you're paying the same price. And so, without any further delay, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Weston and the Savior Fish. Mark, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Tommy. Nice to nice to meet you.
0: So listen, um, you wrote a book, and I I didn't know what to expect about this from this book, and uh, boy, it delivered. The boy, the book is titled "The Savior Fish: Life and Death on Africa's Greatest Lake." Um, available everywhere, and also on Tommy'sOutdoors.com uh, through the provided links. And just to get listeners to the um, sort of idea, what sort of uh, place you were in uh, on the um, island called Ukurewe? Did I pronounce it correct? Ukurewe. Okay. Ukurewe. Yeah. So you were on the island uh, Ukurewe, and you were in the immigration office. You were wondering, like, why is even immigration office required? And from the book, fishermen come here illegally from the neighboring lakeshore nations of Kenya and Uganda. Other immigrants are also on the run from the police or stopping over on their way to seek work in the gold mines near Mwanza. He confirms, that's an officer you talk about. You were the only wazungu, the unofficial East African word for white people on the island. In fact, you are the only ones who have lived there for years, he said. Overland distances could only be guessed at since Ukurewe reminded uncharted even on Google Maps. Estimates on the archipelago's total population began at 200,000 and rose to almost half a million. Other information we had pieced together was murkier still. A guidebook in Tanzania had described the island as uncharted Arcadia, whose inhabitants ate what they grew and were startled at the sight of white people. History books were less elusive. In the 1850s, an Arab slaver told the English explorer John Speck that the Kerewe people were hostile and dangerous. Soon after Speck identified the lake as the main source of the Nile, two British missionaries who followed in his wake were murdered on the island's beaches after becoming embroiled in the local quarrel. A few years later, a group of German evangelists watched their mission burn to the ground as they were driven back to the mainland. Indian traders who came here after the British had ejected the German colonizers after East Africa fo- following World War I met with similar treatment, hounded by a furious mob after r- rumors spread that they were defrauding local cotton farmers. A photograph on the internet showed a pile of dead dogs on the jetty. It was accompanied by another woman with a bloody gash on one arm perhaps suggesting the presence of rabbis on the island. A number of articles alluded to witchcraft, to human bones grounded up and scattered over fishing nets to bring luck to people with albinism murdered so their body parts could be used in medicines. Wow. So that's rough. That's rough. Tell me, like, how did you end up on this island and for, for how long?
1: Oh, we, we lived there for two years. Um and we, we were sent there because my wife um, got a job uh, teaching uh, English teachers, like training English teachers. And in, in Tanzania, um, there are teacher training centres dotted around the country and most of them are in remote areas. And because my wife was late to this project, it's like a British government aid project, um, we got kind of the probably the most remote site in the whole country, um, Ukerewe Island in Tanzania. So, uh, yeah, we didn't really have any choice Um I was kind of excited by it, but also, yeah, pretty scared because there's, there's no, there was nothing on the internet about the island, really. I mean, the, the only stuff was about these people being driven off it or witchcraft or um, rabid,
2: rabid dogs. Um. So, yeah, it was quite scary, but it was also, you
1: yeah, know, obviously a challenge uh, to go and try and live somewhere for two years. Uh, my wife's predecessor on the island had been on the project. She only lasted a couple of months and she actually wanted to get out and get back onto the mainland. Um, and get near, nearer the, the main cities so yeah
0: and is the idea to write a book about it is, is it started like straight away you knew like you're going to this place and, and there was like first like oh i'm gonna at least i'm gonna write a book or is, was it something that that came out once you were on the island
1: yeah i thought i'd probably write about it like articles um because it sounded like an interesting place that nobody knew about and lake victoria is the second biggest freshwater lake in the world and a lot of people don't really know about Lake Victoria either, um. But no, the idea for a book emerged sort of later on during the stay when I found you know, met a lot of people on the island, had a lot of stories to tell, um, and found out about um the environmental crisis that's that's hitting Lake Victoria, and then
0: I decided it would probably make quite a good book, and you know, plenty of enough stories to fill a book rather than just a few articles. Oh, I I I was going to say that. I love the 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 book. Like when you know when it, my first um contact with the book, I open it, and there's a table of content, one, chapters on one through 25, <laughs> and then 201 epilogue, I love this, it. just like, oh, that, that's, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, so we, we said, uh, you know, the the beginning was quite rough, this introduction to the island, and at least in the first part of the book, I I sensed like a constant sense of danger Whatever you were going, you, you didn't know where you go, and the people were shouting at you, and you didn't know whether your house going to be robbed, and, and so on. Tell us how 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 you cope with that, and was that the something that you it, it never left you while you were there, or did you get used to it at at some point?
1: Yeah, at first it was really difficult. So uh, we, um, as I said, we we were in the book that we were basically the first white people to live on the island for a long time. So you really stand out. Everyone else is black um, and they're not really used to visitors. There's not many tourists go there. So, yeah, we were worried um, about being robbed, for example, because we were some of the richest people on the island. It's a very poor part of Tanzania, which is itself a pretty poor country. So we were one of the wealthiest people and the most conspicuous. So we worried about getting uh, robbed. We uh, also got a lot of attention from people. So people would shout out Mzungu Mzungu at us, which basically means white man um in in, uh, east africa in swahili and whenever we'd go out we'd get a lot of people shouting at us and laughing and stuff like that it was a bit uncomfortable um and then at night every um we we rented a small um house small bungalow um and every noise that would happen on the roof was a tin roof and every time there was a noise on the roof we'd jump up an alarm that someone's trying to break into the house but um after a few months well probably a few weeks actually when once we got to know our neighbors a bit more and our Swahili improved, so we were studying Swahili. Nobody, hardly anyone, speaks English on the island. Um, then it got more, it got more comfortable, and they kind of looked up, looked out for us, and were kind of protective of us. And we go, if when we go away from from the island and come back, we at the beginning we thought we definitely would be robbed. Our house would be robbed. It was easy to break into, and people would assume we had stuff that was worth stealing in there. Um, probably didn't really. Um, but whenever we came back, it, it, wouldn't, it wasn't robbed. It hadn't been uh, burgled, and, and we, we think our neighbours were responsible for protecting it because there is a lot of crime on the island because um, it's, it's such a poor island. Yeah, and we got used to it, and there were other discomforts like not having running water, um, which we basically had for an hour a day for the first month or two, and then none for the rest of the time there, and electricity cut off a lot, so it would get quite hot. But yeah, we, we gradually got used to it and kind of adjusted to the island to island life and to the pace. And I suppose we toughened up uh, psychologically in those first sort of couple, two or three months.
0: Yeah. And, and those people who are, who are shouting at you, were they were shouting in a, like aggressive fashion or were they shouting in a kind of like a curious kind of let's see what happened fashion?
1: Mostly the latter, mostly curious. Uh, sometimes a bit more aggressive or just showing off to their friends sort of thing that they're shouting at the foreigners and then then making other comments to their friends that at that time we couldn't understand because we didn't speak Swahili. So but when my wife uh, went out on her own a couple of times to go to the shops or to go to her college, um, she would get more serious hassle. People would, men would sort of go up to her and sort of shimmy in front of her and stuff and call her my baby, which is a couple of the words they knew in English and stuff. So it was much less comfortable for her. So. After a while, she stopped doing that and would just go out when when we'd go out together, and then they shouted at both of us rather than at her.
0: And and did, did those, those the locals also kind of got used to uh, you guys uh, Numa after a while, or or was it like until the last day you got those shouts or looks or whatever?
1: We would go out every single day when we were there because there's no power, so we can store food in a fridge so we have to go to the market every day to buy food um and even until the end we'd get a couple of shouts at the beginning we'd probably get 15 20 people shouting at us in a sort of total of 20 25 minutes walk by the end it had gone down and then i noticed we were back there in uh march this year um a few years later and it had really diminished um so a lot fewer people were shouting at us and bothering us you know they weren't Anywhere near as interested as they used to be, so hopefully that was partly us because we spent two years there. But maybe there's also been more tourists going there.
0: Oh, so you were back since?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've been back several times since.
0: Yeah. Oh right, really? Yeah,
1: because we've got lots of friends there, and we go back and see them, and we, we absolutely love it now. And um, we
0: love. Okay, them. that's interesting. So it turned out from the from the kind of r- rather scary experience <laughs> into a place where you go for holidays now.
1: Oh yeah, them <laughs> <to, I'd> <laughs> love love again if I could. Um,
0: yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think you you mentioned like a kind of like a you you enjoy this slow life on the on the island compared like like right now you're in London, so I presume that's like a completely yeah. different experience.
1: Yeah, it's quite a shock. I remember when we came back once um, on holiday to England from there and we got off a train and a friend was meeting us on the platform, he was at the other end of the platform, he remarked on how slowly we were walking down the <laughs> platform. So even our walking speed had slowed down because A, because it's hot there, so you can't really do things fast. And B because everybody else does. Yeah, you gradually slow down to the island's pace and you start appreciating little things like birds in the trees or bird song or sitting with a couple of kids and helping them with their homework, just little pleasures or having a cup of coffee on by the side of the streets and stuff in a little shack, just little things like that you get to enjoy. Whereas, yeah, in somewhere like London you'll moving to everyone's
0: moving too fast yeah it's a common theme that when you're in nature you kind of slow slowed down and that is a process that that takes months until you really slow slows down to your natural pace and and that that that's that's yeah it's a it's a it's a common theme on a podcast many times uh, we we talked about it how unnatural it really is the, the life we live uh, in 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 terms of like uh, being bombarded with media and with all the stimulus uh, around, where where you s- not appreciate things like you said, like birds or or something like that. Listen, so you said about the uh, running water and power and so on. So I obviously need to ask you about the, you know, sanitary slash medical situation. Uh, it 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 also was pretty rough for what I can gather from the uh, book. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a hospital on the island, but it's really ill-equipped and dirty. Um, I once had to—I once banged my head on the ferry and blood gushing out of my head, and they tried to um, clean it up on the ferry end with this stuff they got out of a bucket. And I ended up going to the hospital there, and the guy said, I need stitches. And I went into the room where they, he was going to perform this surgery. I was quite worried about how clean the implements were. And there was, like, um, dragonflies in... Cobwebs on the walls, and the the bed thing um, was kind of covered in some blood stains. So it's pretty Jeez. pretty filthy uh, hospital. And they run out of medicines very quickly, so they get malaria. There's a lot of malaria on the island. And we mm-hmm.
0: I was going to ask that.
1: We were taking uh, medication to prevent it. Um, but did you tug them with
0: your? Se- with, did you tug them with with you, or did you yeah. rely on the on the? Oh, okay, you, you brought no, took, it uh,
1: yeah. Larry in with Larry with us, and we took it for. Two, I think we took it for about a year, and then. Stopped taking it and just took it in the rainy seasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you're not supposed to take these things for too long. Mm-hmm.
0: Just, what was it, Malaron? Right? Yeah,
1: no, uh, larium, Um
0: Larium, Okay.
1: Yeah. Which gives some people a bad reaction, but mm-hmm.
0: like,
1: like medicine, mental health. Problem.
0: Yeah, you are it doesn't very good.
1: Um, So yeah, but um, well, we were lucky. Actually, we didn't really get ill at all on the island. I, I've been, I've been there since and got um, typhoid. Um, but when we, when we were living there, we didn't get ill. And if we had got ill. The nearest reasonable hospital was a four-hour ferry ride away in Wanza on the mainland, So, and there's only two ferries leaving Okerewe a day, and the last one leaves at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So if you got sick after 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you'd have to wait till 7.30 the next morning to get off the island and to a decent, uh, not decent, but better than the ones on Okerewe hospital. And, yeah, yeah sanitation. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't get water. We didn't have running water, but we, uh, once the running water stopped, um, which was after I think a couple of months, we, we um, paid, there was some guy who used to go around with a trolley and he'd get well water and put it into big jerry cans and um, wheel it around the island trying to sell it to people. So we'd have to buy that and lay in enough water until he would come round 10 days later. But we probably weren't as clean as we are in London and we couldn't, couldn't have as many showers as you just wasn't enough water to have as many showers but of course the people in the island a lot of them who live near the lake, washing the lake. Yeah, but that, that has other dangers, so we didn't really want to do that.
0: One thing I remember was a mortality rate on children. It was one one lady who had like uh, sixteen children, and eight of them died. Yeah. And the and a, and a bit that I really remembered was like it, it was discussion with some guy. You were talking about that you you consider to have a child, and he goes like only one. If 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 he dies, you're gonna be sad. So it was like in a in a terms like, oh, you're gonna be sad when your child die if you have only one. So we need to have more. It's like, whoa, they're 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 really um, have to develop the ways to deal with that. And you know, we're gonna jump in a second into into talking about the lake, and about the fishing, and about the environmental aspect of it because this is really what is probably the most interesting for the listeners of this podcast. But uh, I, I, I just want to follow up a little bit in, in terms of what's going on with the lake because everything is going on you know around the lake and the lake is like a, like a center point there. And while we're talking about the, the, the um, diseases and the, and the parasites, uh, there was one parasite, like th- this disease, also known as...
1: Schistosomiasis. Schistosomiasis, yeah. Schistosomiasis. Bill, yeah, or Bill Hart. Yeah, it's got two names.
0: It's a rife around Lake Victoria. But the black freshwater snail, which carry the parasite, are a common sight floating near the beaches. And anyone who washes, swims, or fishes in the lake is at the risk of infection. The snail's larvae release into the water, which burrows through the human skin and grows into a half-inch-long worm. The worm's eggs pass back to the lake with urine and faeces. When they hatch, they find a snail to inhabit, and the cycle begins again. The worms can live in the human body for decades if disease goes untreated. They can cause liver failure and the dangerous accumulation of a fluid in the abdomen. Treatment is inexpensive, but the symptoms of the acute stage of stomach ache and cough, fatigue, and fever are not severe by the standards of the tropical Africa and they abate after a few weeks, even if the worm remains in the body. Many islanders are infected repeatedly. As well as multiple other roles, the lake is used as a toilet, and for those who don't live near the well where there is is no cleaner source of water. Most families are ignorant of the long-term risk posed by the disease, and a few see medication for non-urgent condition as a worthwhile use of scarce funds. So that's, you know, I always wondered, like, if if the if the local people are developing some sort of a, um, you know, immunity, or they're like like some in some way at least more immune, because it seems like you know if if the, if the people like <laughs> like you and I go there, we we will just go down straight away. You had to be super careful, did you?
1: Yeah, I think the local people develop immunity to things like malaria, so if they catch it when they're babies. And don't die of it, which a lot of them do die. Then they they're more robust against it when they're older, but not against bilharzia because it's a parasite. Here, and that was one that was one of the three reasons why we didn't wash in the lake. The other two that there were a few crocodiles and a few hippos as well. So you, you risk getting attacked by a hippo or eaten by a crocodile as well. It Doesn't happen very often, but it can it can happen. Um, but yeah, bilharzia is absolutely rampant, and it's more ra- more rampant around Lake Victoria than anywhere else in Tanzania because there's so many people there passing the parasite back into the lake when they go to the toilet in the lake, for example. It's such a huge population around the lake. And yeah, the effects are really quite long-term. So we, one of our neighbours um, died of the long-term effects of it and it just destroyed his spleen and he kind of swelled up and then lost loads of weight. And he was about 45, 50, um, and, and yeah, died of it. But um, he caught it a long time before. It takes quite a long time to kill you. And if you haven't got any money, um, and the, the initial symptoms pass quickly, and then you just forget about it and it just gradually screws you up, really. And that's that's a, that's a disease which is actually on the increase in Tanzania. So, health um, indicators in Tanzania, Tanzania have actually improved over the years. So, infant, infant mortality is right down, child mortality is right down. Um, but Bill Hart's here is something that's going up. It's one of the few diseases that's getting works.
0: Wow. Yeah. And and so so with people like you said like for example in, with the malaria where the where there's like medication is scarce they're using like a traditional medicine Chinese plants some some other stuff, but but also the, the the witchcraft and so just before we jump into the environmental aspects of it like tell us tell tell us about this this witchcraft situation because it's not only has an implication for health but also social fabric is uh, affected by this and, and, and you had some some interesting um, stories to tell.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you go to other places in Tanzania than Ukerewa and you tell them you're living on Ukerewa, tell people you're living on Ukerewa, they'll talk about two things. They'll talk about fish and they'll talk about witchcraft.
2: Ukerewa is famous for the number of witches it has. Um, and
1: any sort of setback in your life, for example, a health setback or somebody dying or you losing your job if you have a job, a lot of people attribute those to witchcraft. So somebody you know has taken out has taken out a curse on you through a witch. Either they're a witch themselves or they've paid a witch to curse you and make this bad thing happen to you. Um, and our neighbourhood on the island, a small neighbourhood, was one where there was apparently witches on every street corner and people would know who all these witches were and they'd point them out to you. Um, and I probably I knew some of them. Um, but we were, yeah we oh yeah what what, one story i can tell you why why it happens why i think it happens is that in our first two or three weeks on the island there was some noise on our roof one night and we told and it was a bird and i didn't know what oh yeah it was a bird it was an owl i saw it fly off and it was an owl and the the next day uh, my wife told her driver who was going to take her to the college that this owl had landed on the roof and we'd scared it off and he said oh my god why did you do that that's that terrible someone has sent that owl to uh, curse you and the fact that you've you've scared it off is going to put you in great danger um, we about, yeah and we told somebody else that and they they echoed the same story so um you know we don't believe in witchcraft but as i say in the book if something bad had happened to us in the next few days like one of us had got sick or fallen off a motorbike taxi or whatever i wouldn't have thought it was because of the owl but it would have definitely crossed my mind that we had potentially been cursed three days ago. I would, I would have shrugged it off. But the people on Airway, they're steeped in this idea of witchcraft. It's around them all the time. So they would, many of them would definitely have thought that the fall, falling off the motorbike was because of this owl and because of this curse that had been sent you, and sent, um, inflicted on you. And they would have told all their friends, oh, there's an owl on my house. Three days later, I fell off a motorbike or I got sick or I lost my job. And these bad things happen all the time in these poor environments, much more than they do here to people. Um, and they would tell all their neighbors and that would spread around and the power of, the, of witchcraft would, the reputation of witchcraft would grow and become stronger. And I think that's why the belief, or one of the reasons why belief in it is so strong on Ukraine, especially now when there's an economic crisis on the island, which we'll talk about, and an environmental crisis, which we'll talk about. Bad things are happening to people all the time. People are getting poorer, they're finding it harder to get food. And so they seek an explanation, and most people will tell you that the explanation for your bad fortune is witchcraft, and you can you can pay an, another witch to try and fight off that curse. Um, but yeah, lots of people
2: don't yeah. like that.
0: I, I remember listening to the podcast where there, I, I think it's in French Guyana. There is a hunting guide, and he he's basically take people hunting or fishing on the river. And, you know, he has a Gmail and you can email him and set up everything. And yet he tells a story about the, the shamans and, you know, how they don't have pigs because there's a shaman in the village and then the other shaman does something and so on. So it's, it's like the, these these both things like live in parallel. It doesn't, doesn't mean that you... You know, you are not exposed, and not, not using modern technology and stuff, and at the same time, and like you said, it, it it can mess with your brain because then you start thinking like, oh, right. And you actually went into one of those 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 witches, or the, there was like a clairvoyant or something, and you were asking questions. And it was like, oh, like what? How did he, how did he know that? Like, what what's your what's your kind of reflection after a while on this? Was it like a pure luck, or was it like something that you can't explain to this point? Like how? Well, how
1: yeah, he was trying to sort of. Talk to me about myself, past and future, and he got quite a few things right. That there was a couple of things that there was no way he could know. Um, Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know, but he he also got he he asked one thing at the beginning, asking if my parents were divorced, for example, which is apparently a good lead in to whatever he would say next, because he could then guess that Mm
2: -hmm. jealousy
1: was involved or something. Or um, but yeah, he got things right that I didn't think he would get right. Um, I was I was quite I was surprised by it. But maybe maybe someone had gossiped about it. But there was—I'm pretty sure there was one or two things that he mentioned that I hadn't told anybody on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I had. I'm not sure. Yeah, I was in, in, yeah.
0: Interesting. I know that they're, they're, they're those people are—they're very good at, at observing body language and yeah. little those those cues. They they really tune into those cues, and that allows them to uh, guide a discussion in a, in a like. What well, that made you uncomfortable that day?
1: No, I think it's quite interesting. I think It's, it's interesting if these things work. Um, nice. Yeah, I don't mind it. I'm, I'm fascinated by. I'm, I, I quite enjoy all the stories and the, and things. But I don't obviously don't enjoy the negative effect it has on people. But some of I must say that some of these kind of traditional healers actually their stuff works. You know that, that um, you know they've been going for years and um, they use they use roots and plants and stuff that is known to work. And maybe it's a placebo effect, but people, some people do get better after consulting these traditional healers, but traditional healers are a bit different from witches. Witches are about removing the curse, whereas traditional healers are about solving the problem, solving, you know, solving your broken hand or whatever.
0: Yeah, and they're they're like a very playing important role in in a, in terms like you describe the hospital and yeah. sometimes it's, and and people usually turn to them first before they go to hospital, right? Because yeah, hospital is expensive, I I guess for
1: it's more people. expensive and they don't get treated as well in hospital because people sort of look down on doctors and stuff or look down. Ah, oh, okay, okay. Because doctors um,
0: think they're like above yeah. everybody else. Yeah, really, and so it's a more
1: comfortable experience with the witch doctor. You've got more time. You can patiently explain what's going on as the doctors are in a rush because they've got loads of people to see. Um, but yeah, they normally go to which doctors first because it's cheaper as, as well and then go to hospital often to die and then people hear this, oh, we went to hospital and died and then they blame the hospital. Yeah. So hospital reputation goes down Yeah, actually they died because they were being treated by a witch doctor totally ineffectively and getting worse. And then went to the hospital when it was
0: too late. But you know, I'm, I think about like some sometimes it, it has a huge positive effect when when you when when doctor actually can hear what's what's wrong with you. I, I I absolutely hate these these massive like where you treat it like a product. You go here and there's like five minutes there, and you go to the doctor and he's like, and you go to the heart doctor and the heart doctor looks at your heart and doesn't matter everything else that's going on in your in your body is like it, you get a medication for heart disease and you go out and then. They go to the next one to treat your liver and there's like oh god yeah, so yeah there's i guess uh good and bad. listen okay so we painted a picture about the place how the place looks like uh really poor um place with poor sanitation and 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 Everything that we that we talked about, and you you talk in the book about many other things, and I encourage anyone to 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 read the book. There's very interesting stuff about ethnic groups and the history of uh, religion on the island, and how those religions, Islam and and Christianity, are intertwined with the local beliefs and, and the witchcraft and all that. That's that's fascinating, and uh, people will read about this from the book. But let's talk about the lake, and what was the first. You know, like, um, uh, do you have like an interest in, environmental, in environmentalism or like how you know how this came about that you that you took an interest in the environmental situation with the lake and then uh, describing everything that was happening um, in the book.
1: I'm interested, but not an expert. So when I went there, I didn't really know anything about um, overfishing, for example. But I just realised fairly quickly from talking to neighbours and friends and things that. That was the main story there, That the uh, overfishing of the lake and the environmental crisis that is linked to it is is what is making Ukerewe poorer and making my friends poorer and make it harder for them to feed their family. So I got interested because of that, started doing some reading. There's not much about it out there, but started reading quite a lot of academic papers and other books about it, as well as talking to people and, yeah, built up my knowledge from that and um, got interested in it, mainly because it was affecting local people's lives so much.
0: So if I get this right, the, the the people lived there for millennia and there were fishing and everything was kind of like in balance. And and from what I gather from the book, the first first thing that started to go south was in 1905 where British brought gillnets um, for that. So uh, from the book about those gillnets, cheap, durable, and able to trap huge numbers of fish their use quickly spread around the lake. Further technological advances followed. New railways that link the lake main cities to Mwanza in Kisumu to the Indian Ocean allowed their haul to be sold in the markets of Nairobi, Mombasa, and Dar el Salam. Touch sizes, particularly of the popular Ngege tilapia, exploded. Fishermen descended on the lake from other parts of Central and East Africa, attracted by the precious, precious opportunity to earn cash and upgrade their living standards. They were organized into fleets with boats owners for the first time hiring labor. The region's farmers, meanwhile, laid down their hoes and picked up nets. The population around the lake swelled, both because of a migration and because improved diets and public health advances introduced by Europeans slashed mortality rates. But the boom could not last. A colonial official had written at the turn of the century that the native methods do not catch Ngege in any appreciable numbers. The newer techniques, on the other hand, proven brutally efficient and quickly took their toll on fish stocks. Ten years after flax gillnets were first draped in the lake, catch rates began to decline. Fishermen who in 1916 had been hauling a hundred Ngege in the net on a good night, were catching just five per net 10 years later. So from 100 to, to five. They resp- They responded by using nets with smaller mesh sizes, which as well as catching adult fish also hoovered up young fish that hadn't reached reproductive age. Yet the catch rate continued to fall. By 1950, a fishing crew was lucky if during the whole night on the lake they caught a single Ngege. By 1955, the species was commercially extinct, and catfish and other large species were also in precipitous decline. So, start of a turn of the century, and things were were going south.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the British wanted to balance the colonial books, so they wanted to turn the lake into something that was that would produce cash. So, thing that's going to produce cash in the lake is fish. So, they made, they brought in these black gill nets, which were a more efficient way of collecting of, of fishing before before that um local people did fish but only seasonally and only occasionally most people were farmers and a few people would catch fish you, you used to, be able to pick them up with your hands apparently um and yeah it wasn't a big thing and they would be shared among the whole community so it was very sustainable because also there weren't many people um, and those people who were there weren't
2: doing fishing all the time which um they started to do in the last in the last century so the so the british wanted to um, you know,
1: export this fish from the lake around East Africa at this time, um, and that's why they brought these flax gill nets and, and better boats and organised them into fishing fleets. But that quickly resulted in in overfishing. So the although they, it made money for a while, then it stopped making money in about the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. So the British had to think of something else.
0: So that was really the the, the moment when the whole balance started to to be this dysregulated because also a lot of people get in there. So, But overall, would you think that there was a moment where local community was like, yeah, this is great. We're, we're getting better life and, and so on. Or was it like super short-lived?
1: Well, it was two or three decades. Yeah, I, I guess so. Again, the British also brought healthcare, modern healthcare. So people's kids would survive a bit longer and live a bit longer. So there were benefits. Yeah, and people eating more fish would be a benefit as well because, fish is good for you but yeah by the 1950s the, the lake wasn't producing any money and people were getting poorer and hunger was coming back so for a while yeah, it benefited the local economy but it was actually one of the most biodiverse environments on earth before um, the 20th well before the middle of the 20th century there's like 500 species of cichlids in there for example and scientists used to, used to go there to study the massive diversity of these fish but that started to dwindle in the sort of 30s and 40s.
0: So the the lake was overfished, and then there was a great idea to introduce this savior fish.
1: As I say, the British had to find some, some other way to make money from from the, from the lake to balance the books of the British colony. Um, so they thought of introducing an alien fish species um, to
2: the lake, um, which would eat the remaining native species,
1: which are these little fish called cichlids, colorful fish, but not really edible, tiny and bony, so not, you're not going to make money by exporting cichlids. So they they thought if they could introduce a predator to the lake, which would eat these cichlids, it would turn the cichlids into something of economic value. So they um, alighted on the idea of introducing the Nile perch, which is a huge uh, predator fish, which um, can grow to the size of a man. um, And Swims very fast and would eat all these
2: all these local fish species, but itself would be tasty and palatable and exportable and bring in a lot of revenues to
1: the lake uh, zone. And it, had, it had thrived in a couple of other in a few other African lakes, the Nile perch, and done fine. But it had never been um, sighted in in Lake Victoria. It had been in uh, on the on the Nile itself, the river, that's why it's called the Nile perch, which which comes out of Lake Victoria, but never in the lake itself. Um, and so they debated about this, asked a few ecologists what to do and scientists what to do, and quite a lot of ecologists said it's too risky introducing an alien predator into a fragile tropical ecosystem.
0: What year was it?
1: Uh, early 1950s. I think it was introduced in about 1954. But um, anyway, so they they took they listened to the ecologists and then decided no, we're going to introduce it anyway. um, (laughs)
0: How typical, right? Like Um, with fishing quotas, we have a 21st century and nothing changed. Same thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, probably, I think some of the ecologists said it was okay, but quite a lot said it wasn't. Um, So in 1954, a British colonial official in Uganda walked along this jetty and dropped a few Nile perch into the lake. Mm -hmm. And that was the uh, supposed solution to the uh, crisis the beginning of the biodiversity crisis in the lake and beginning of the fishing overfishing crisis in the lake. But um, it took about 20 years for these fish to kind of appear in nets, these Nile perps, and that was, I think, the 1970s when they first started to appear in nets. But by then, people around the lake were really desperate because they hadn't had any fish for 20 years, really, and a lot of them had abandoned farming and their kids weren't farming. So they, you know, and the population growth had, had deforested Look at airway, for example. So farming was much more difficult, and and the climate was changing as well. So they were by the time Nile perch did start to appear in nets, they were pretty desperate.
0: You said climate was changing. Was it like a first first uh, Was it was it related to the, the to the day climate change we're facing right now already, or was it just like a, some some sort of a local uh, changes in the climate? Yeah, I think just I think it's more local
1: because you know the level of the lake went down and there were there were droughts and things. Um, it, I mean, it may be related to the long-term climate change. And being affected now, there's been big floods in the last couple of years in Lake Victoria, which will be because of because of the climate change we know about. Um, the levels have gone right back up. Um, but yeah, it was more about local variations.
0: So for, for for this, like you said, twenty years, the situation was even worse than before. Um, yeah, this is this is typical. You know, everything is kind of like in balance, and then when you kind of yeah throw it out of balance you got you got this this huge ups and downs so people went in there was like oh you have all those gillnets and all that and then for after that it took 20 years before those nile perch started to appear people were very um desperate well they welcome the 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 nile perch that showed up
1: no they didn't like it
0: at first. was it like or was it like everybody already forgot about this idea and they're like oh it didn't work and then they were surprised that they showed up
1: I think people probably didn't know, um, local people probably didn't know that the colonial official had put it in. It wasn't, there wasn't a big fanfare around it. Um, So they'd have been surprised to find this new fish in their nets, but at first people didn't like it. I mean, they tried eating it and didn't like the taste. It was kind of fatty compared to the local um, species of things like tilapia and and catfish and other fish which were, whose numbers were were dwindling. Um, And uh, by then the colonizers had left. So by then, Tanzania, Uganda and Kenya were independent. So local government officials went around teaching local people how to fillet the fish and how to, how to dry it in the sun and smoke it um, and trying to kind of persuade them that actually, yeah, this is a nice fish and you want to be catching it and eating it and we want to be exporting it. So at first, yeah, they weren't that interested. They, I think even now, a lot of local people prefer um, the Lake Tilapia to the uh, Nile perch, but Nile perch is the one that's made region money over the years.
0: Sangara, they call it, right? Sangara,
1: yeah, and Sato is the tilapia. They're the two main fish. The tilapia were also introduced by the British, but there were other tilapia before then that were native to the lake. And they, they, have, they haven't caused any damage, but they've they're now their numbers are now very recently dwindling.
0: And then, so that, how the situation unfolded once the, the the perch was was in there, there was like a second second up.
1: Yeah, in the 80s and 90s there was a big fishing boom so um, the perch were exported um to uh, europe asia and the middle east um for quite good money um you know big fish big fleshy pretty palatable fish um and loads of people came all from all around africa uh, well, eastern central africa to fish the to join this kind of gold rush because there were loads of fish appearing in the nets now big fish that could be sold for a lot of money which keep your Family in food and uh, you can build a house, um, you know, keep your family in food for a long time, build a house. And there was a, there was a lot of money sloshing around uh, the lake. Um, and people, that's why people called it, started calling it the savior fish, which is the title of my book. It kind of, from an absolute kind of dearth and drought of fish, there was suddenly a massive boom, not just of fish, but of cash coming into the lake economy from all around the world into the Tanzanian, Ugandan, and Kenyan economies. So, um, yeah it became known as the savior fish there was a huge boom
2: people made a lot of money um and the population around the lake absolutely exploded um second
0: think, time around was it was it exploded yeah. to even higher numbers than the, in the first boom yeah
1: much much higher yeah so now i think something like 25 million people depend on the lake but then many more than that i think something like 100 million live around the lake uh today at least yeah um and yeah, that went up very quickly because the African population was booming at that time anyway, very fast. And they wanted to be where the money is, obviously, and where the jobs are. So they, the, the boom, the population boom around the lake was even faster than the boom in the rest of, say, Tanzania or other parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. And that put great pressure on, on the fish and on the whole lake
0: environment. So that boom with the Nile, with the, with the Nile perch that was not related only to Ukurewe it was, it was around Lake Victoria and Tanzania in general so Ukurewe was just like a small dot that was affected by the bigger trend around the lake
1: Yeah it was around the whole lake shore so uh, uh, Tanzania Uganda and Kenya um, and on all the islands on the lake there's a lot of islands and Ukurewe is the biggest island so it was a bit of a hub for nile perch fishing so particularly i'd say benefited wukerewe more than some of the other islands and some of the coast some of the lakeshore um places also it wasn't that far from Wanza, which is a big city and where lots of fish processing factories sprang up to process these fish before they were sent for export so wukerewe was a few hours by ferry or a few more hours than that by paddled uh canoe um so I think it, it benefited more than most places. And you can see when you go there now, there are buildings that were started during this boom, and there are kind of rods coming out of the roofs or a few bricks where they planned to put a second floor. You know, there was a boom, there's not many two-storey buildings. There's hardly any two-storey buildings. Like there. So you can see where people had this ambition to um, build more and that and lots of schools were built. Um, for example, so education in Nakateo is better than it is in, in, in a lot of Tanzania. So there are some lasting benefits of this boom.
0: Oh, okay. Mm. So that's that is good to hear. Yeah. Right, but um, like we said, and like it's uh, easy to anticipate that didn't that didn't last long, right? So how when, when was the first time when when it was the first sign of the boom slowing down? In probably in the
1: late nineteen nineties, early two thousands.
0: So it's quite recent. It's a quite recent story. It's a yeah. quite recent story. It's, a, it's, it's in the 2000s, it's the two, 21st century, right? Yeah. So, so what happened was like, the fated Sangara, which had absorbed the chiefs of old as the guar- guarantor of islanders' well-being, is no longer able to fulfill its role as a savior. A perfect storm has hit Lake Victoria as as combined effects of predation and pollution have ravaged fish population. One site of almost miraculous biodiversity and for so long Central Africa's greatest giver of life, the lake is now witnessing what one biologist has declared as the first mass extinction of vertebrates that scientists have ever had an opportunity to observe. Man. Yeah, and he's, how, he's uh, how we get there? How we get the us, How we get there? Because you, there's multiple factors, right? There's population. There's there's predation, pollution, many things. Not the one. Not just one.
1: Yeah. So overfishing was one. So the Nile perch got overfished um, because there was too many people fishing for them, and they're using still,
0: the still even though it was fish reintroduced to the lake well, for the with the purpose of being fished, yeah. we still like we as, as humans still managed to overfish it.
1: Yeah, because, yeah, the technology was improving. The boats were getting faster. The, net, the nets were getting stronger. You need strong nets for Nile perch because they're fast, strong swimmers. Um, and they had smaller mesh sizes, you know, the hole sizes got smaller. Um, and there's loads more people trying to fish them and not very well regulated. And they, you know, you could bribe the government's government officials to look the other way if they were trying to clamp down on your fish. They banned trawlers, for example. So there were trawlers on the lake. You know, scraping the lake bed and just catching everything. They were they were banned sometime in the early two thousands, but it took about another ten years for them actually to disappear from the lake, um, because the trawler owners were just paying people to ignore, paying officials to ignore their their presence, and they were they were still making money. Um, so that's that's
2: overfishing. Then there's the predation by the Nile perch. So the Nile perch was not only eating the locals, the native species, but also competing
1: with them for food, for other food. So, um, the mass extinction that that uh, scientist is talking about refers to the cichlids, which went, whose number, there were about 500 species, um, until the 70s or 80s. And it, that number went down by 200, 250. So almost half, probably more than half the cichlid species went extinct. And a lot of the others are on the, um, endangered list even now. So masses of the lake spi- local species disappeared. So you've got overfishing, you've got predation, you've got pollution from, Things like the fish factories and other factories that sprung up around the lake, like tanneries and things, to service the local population, and also from agriculture, so people would have to eat around the lake. So there's a lot more agriculture on the lake, so pesticides and fertilizers um, went into the lake from farms on the lake shores, and farms are just scratches of land, they're not official farms with hedges and fence, fences. And then there was deforestation, so people had to build houses, so they needed wood. Um they needed something to cook the fish with. So they needed wood for that, um, and they needed wood for the boat. So Okerewe, um, which used to be covered in uh, forest not all that long ago, 100 years ago, is now pretty much deforested. Deforested. There are patches of forest, but hardly any left, and the same applies around the rest of the lake. So because of deforestation, the soil is looser, and there are fewer barriers to all these um, pesticides and fertilisers and human sewage as well going into the lake. So it's a big vicious circle. Um, with four kind of main things contributing to this biodiversity collapse and collapse in Nile Perch stocks as well.
0: And, you know, like what's what strikes me is that, you know, we, we, the, the, the book starts and we, like we started, okay, it was like the 1950s, 1916. So like in your head is like, oh, you know, it was a long time ago. And then before you know it, you're in years 2000s and essentially the same almost the same cycle unfolded with well, a big boom, a lot of fish, a lot of people go in, their fish, they're, you know, look like there is a prosperity finally coming and quickly their the natural resource could get, just, just get destroyed and, and everything, um, and everything t- turns to the worst. Uh, there's a, there's a good chapter. There's a good uh, description about the cichlids. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip that, but the, the, the part that was interesting that you you were in a quite good, you know, you were friends with one of those fishermen and um, bribing, like you mentioned like bribing is a big issue because you, you're you essentially, you know, above the law if you can bribe local officials. But then you have those poor people who don't have money to bribe and they have no choice but to engage in the, you know, illegal fishing practices. And uh, there is a, I think it was chapter seventeen where you actually were on a lake with with this man fishing, seeing like how what are the conditions, how they're fishing, and, and this is this is a fantastic description. But he kind of explained to you the the, the poaching because they are affected with their poachers, and he said like like you know it was like an explanation of poverty and poaching. He is content with a bucket full of shiny furu that each net yields. The bycatch, a young Sangara, a a bonus, but not the focus of this operation. Although he knows why this method of fishing is banned, he doesn't agree with the perch will be wiped out if the intensity of the effort to catch them continues unchecked. The Sangara produce thousands of young, he says. If I catch a few of them, it's not going to make any difference. The politicians tell us we shouldn't fish like this. But there are no other companies to work for. And no government jobs. What else can we do? We don't have money to buy an outboard motor to go fishing in the deep water. And even if we did, pirates would take our nets. I could pull a cart all day in town and earn 5,000 shillings. That's enough for one person to live on. But not if he has six children and a wife. And the government wants us to send our kids to school. How can we do that if we don't even have enough money to eat? So there's a dire situation, really. It's, it's like a circle. like These people are caught between the rock and the hard place.
1: Yeah, and you have to send your kids to school. It's illegal not to send your kids to school. And you have to buy them pencil cases and books and stuff um, and bags, school bags so you've got to have some money. You'll be, you'll be breaking the law if you don't do these things. And the only way to get some money is either by crime or by illegal fishing. There really are hardly any jobs um, on Ukerewe or the other islands of the, of the lake, I mean, there's markets. Um, but when there's no cash around, the markets don't make any money either. And the cash used to come from fishing, but now it doesn't. Um, so yeah, my friend Hassani, he, he is an illegal fisherman. Um, he is a, his type of fishing is called kokoro fishing, which, um, is beach sailing, um, in English, where you drape a huge net out in the lake from the beach and two, two teams of men take each side of the net and pull it in slowly. So it it drags along the bottom of the lake. And it's in the shallows where um, young Nile perch um, mature and where, the, where breeding Nile perch are. So it captures a lot of young and breeding Nile perch. So it is a danger to the Nile perch stocks. But he doesn't fish for Nile perch. He fishes for fulu in Swahili cichlids in English, which he sells to Nile perch fishermen to use as bait. You know, the legal, some of them are legal. These mile perch fishermen who go out in deeper into the lake, it's, it's legal to do that. It's not legal to do it with hundreds of hooks on one line. And lots of people do that. I've um, recently uh, discovered. Um, yeah, so he's right at the bottom of the lake's food chain, I'm selling, selling fish as bait to other to other fishermen. But yeah, he, he says he couldn't survive without doing this. You know, someone, when we were there the, um, in February, um, someone in Mwanza in the fish market there, which I visited, told me that these kokoro fishermen should get other jobs. So I suggested that to my friend on the island a bit later. And he said, there aren't any other jobs. What are we going to do? There are no jobs and he's not young. He's 50. So no, nobody's going to retrain him to learn some other skill. That's all he knows. So yeah, it's, yeah, as you so say, so it's much. a rock and a hard place. Yeah.
0: That's a dire situation because you're, like you said, it's illegal. So, what What are gonna, I guess, like nobody cares. Like, you're supposed to send your kids to school, and if you don't, then you're doing something illegal, and nobody cares that he doesn't have money or anything like that.
1: No, I mean, he'd get somehow fined, or (laughs) he occasionally does have to pay bribes to stop his nets being confiscated because there are patrols around the lake trying to stop this illegal fishing coming. He occasionally gets caught and has to pay a small bribe.
0: Yeah. That's 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 a thing. That's an excellent uh you know thing that people who read read a book like yours, they 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 maybe they understand this is not that simple because when you're approaching that from the conservational stand, con- conservation standpoint, you might you know make those you know uh easy, convenient statements. Oh, they should and they shouldn't. But then when you when you actually know a person and another human being who is there, right, you're not You're not going to say, like, oh, you should do this you because there's, like, literally nothing he can do.
1: Unless he wants to die or his kids to get sick and he can't buy medicine, so the kids die. Yeah. And that's not just him. There's thousands of people like that on Okerewe, just on Okerewe, yeah. around the whole lake. There's many more.
0: Yeah, 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 of course. That, that That's the point. This is just an example, <coughs> but this is, like, yeah. a major... Major social problem, how did that yeah. operation look like like what was what was your 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 thoughts when you were there at night at the at the beach with those people
1: oh uh, yeah, well, we went out on in his canoe late at night to avoid the patrols which mostly come out in the daytime um and yeah we found kind of secluded beach um another team of people came on another boat who we were friends of his but they were stopping off they were on the way to a, back to another island so they helped so they, they draped this net out and it takes about an hour to pull it in it's really arduous hard backbreaking work and his hands are just lined with white lines um, from years of pulling these ropes in hour after hour night after night And he would do that on a normal night probably 10 times no, no probably eight seven or eight times so eight hours he'd be out fishing draping this thing out and getting just a little bucket not even a bucket full just a few each time end up with depends actually he would he would sometimes make about the equivalent of two pounds a night sometimes he'd make five pounds a night and you have to divide that among him and his crew he owns the boat so he gets half the takings and divides the rest among among his crew so he's actually better off than some people and his crew are worse off than him Some nights he'll do better but in the old days you could make 30 pounds in a night or 50 pounds in a night doesn't
0: happen anymore because it's done starting fish. Wow! Yeah, they, I, there's even a passage in the book. They told you to not pull those ropes because your hands are not, you know. Yeah, he wouldn't let me.
1: He thought I was sort of a feet <laughs> aesthetic writer whose hands, <laughs> hands were needed for writing rather than pulling in ropes. I never got to do that.
0: Oh man! Yeah, and and again, uh, I, I just want to encourage everybody to read the book. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Like for example, when you were attending the guy who was uh, making banana beer. Uh, it was it was another story, but I got I got to ask you, you 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 stashed one one bottle of the banana beer to wait until it it turns black because apparently then it's like, did you like how was it?
1: Yeah, it's good. It was strong. Yeah, everyone okay. said. Yeah, you know, okay. everyone, everyone asked me that. What happened to that bottle? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was much stronger. You didn't, oh. want to, you didn't want to drink too much of it in one go.
0: Okay, um, it, it probably becoming more like vodka than the than the beer. Guess, right? Yeah. Or like wine. Banana, banana
1: rum or something. Yeah. Yeah. Gin.
0: Interesting. Listen. Um, so, just to continue on the subject of the of the of the issues that you were talking with a gentleman, uh, I think it was from Italy or from some some sure. something like that, who was trying to set up some enterprise and and help people, and then it turned out that the situation again, the social situation with witchcraft and bribes and history of of um corporations that didn't really give a good forecast for his business venture either so it, it, it's not only the situation is like how the, how am i gonna how am i gonna get these people out of this situation so even if there's someone shows up who has an idea that also doesn't particularly can fly because of the witchcraft because of all these things
1: yeah i mean this italian guy um wanted to introduce fish farms to wakanewa um
0: which probably have a same, same some other environmental problems as well, but yeah, before have, we even get to that...
1: Yeah, many potential environmental problems, like the diseases among the fish and the diseases getting out into the lake and more nutrients getting out into the lake and polluting the lake because the farms are usually near the lake. So if it rains, stuff from the farms is going to go out into the lake because the, in, the interior is hilly. Um, but yeah, so he wanted to introduce fish farms and um, I met him a couple of times to talk about it. And I suggested to my friend, the one I went out fishing with, Hassani, that he comes and list, comes and hears what this guy has to say about fish farms. And he was interested. Um, so we went along and met him. And uh, Hassani looked kind of reluctant to take on the idea. I didn't ask him why then, but he sort of wasn't that enthusiastic about the, the idea. And I asked him afterwards, um, oh, yeah. And, and the fish farms were, it was going to be funded, I think, by the World Bank or mm-hmm. the UNDP or someone. Um, and they wanted, kind of cooperative fish farm approach so you couldn't just have your own fish farm and your family running it or guarding it you had to do it with more people so that you get more fishermen off the lake and onto the fish farm so less pressure on the lake um but he said that he wouldn't be able to find anyone he could trust to guard the lake guard the farm the pond at night um they would sell it to the sell the stock to thieves or take it themselves to sell it um so even though he's lived on the island for a long time, knows loads of people, very popular guy. He doesn't think he could trust anybody, and there's, so all this economic crisis has resulted in a kind of social uh, breakdown um, where people yeah. don't trust each other anymore. And witchcraft has something to do with this because people are always wor- worried that people taking curses out on them or um, you know turning against them in some way, trying to bring them down so that they can themselves can rise up. So there's this big lack of trust, which I don't think the uh, development community really had taken into into account as not as oh yeah fish farm great idea potentially if it's a long way away from the lake not at risk of polluting the lake um and you know how to look after it and you're trained to look after it but there's you're 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 introducing this fish farm into a social context and as you say a history that means that you can't just apply that solution to every situation you've got to do a lot more work Somehow to get them to accept this fish farm, and then when we went back there the other day in March, so there aren't any fish farm, so um, it didn't work. The guy left quite quite soon afterwards. He was very well intentioned, and he'd done he'd had some success doing the same thing in the Ivory Coast, but it didn't work.
0: Yeah, and like this 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 witchcraft thing as well is like you you, you there's I think part of the book where is you know someone just basically. Pointed at someone else at random of like oh yeah he will cause this you know make witch to cause and then uh, then kind of law enforcement in their quotes getting involved because one said oh this guy based on whatever witchcraft thing happened and then the law enforcement use this opportunity to get bribes and if the guy doesn't have money to to bribe them then it go be, being locked up it's just it's just desperate it's just desperate and and. Yeah, I, I like everybody who's listening to this. I, I just think this is a great example how we sit comfortably and we offering environmental solutions, easy environmental solutions, and they're just just not going to work for 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 many different uh, reasons.
1: Or if they are, you've got to have a for them to work. You've got to get a very good understanding of the local context and what people actually want. As so people come in with these recipes. Often, they, people don't want these recipes. They want to do something different, yeah. and they, they never really involve local people enough and ask local people enough what they want. That's it. Certainly in Africa, I mean, I Can't speak for other places, but certainly.
0: In a no, lot of I mean, like I, I think, and especially in in uh, you know when you talk about very poor regions, you know, Africa is 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 a very good example. Many countries in Africa, the, you know, on one hand, I think that people just want to feel good about. You know, helping, and we are oh, we gonna help, right? And they feel good about themselves that they, you know, throw a donation, money, or something at the project without the understanding. And I think that this is like very easy to sort out. But like you said, there's no quote unquote boots on the ground, people who understand, who live and breathe like you did. You were you were there two years, and you you come to understand all those little things that are happening. And, and you could see firsthand like yeah okay you're you just gonna you know it's either not gonna work or you're gonna create another big problem like already we discussed two of them on the on a the, on the time span of, uh, of uh, over hundred years so we were two years there on the island towards the end where when you knew that your your uh, your wife assignment let's let's go that way is about to finish and you're gonna come back to Europe. Were you were like, kind of like counting days and it's like, oh God, right, finally? Or were you kind of dreading the moment that you will finally have to leave?
1: Yeah, at the beginning when we arrived, we would count days almost like prisoners on a wall, count days that we'd got through without any problems. So we'd have a little drink every evening and sort of celebrate having got through an, another day without any big problems. But by the end, no, we um, really didn't want to leave. And we were, yeah, we were dreading it and really quite sad to leave. And it, when I got back to Europe, and came back to spain after that immediately after it was quite kind of lonely not having this big community around you of all these people and all these kids who were always there and you always had someone to talk to or you know have a laugh with or whatever um and then you come back to europe and you're much more isolated um whereas there we were part of a community obviously a strange and exotic part of a part of a community but we were you know we had a lot of friends there and we still have these friends, and we got really close to local people and, and the local kids. So, yeah, we were we were really upset when we left. Um, the only consolation is that we've managed to go back quite a few times uh, since my wife got another job in Tanzania, um, in Dar es Salaam, a bit, a bit after that um, for a year. So we went back a lot then, and then we went back this year for the first time for, for a while.
0: I'm curious of your, you know, after, after a while, after these years, your... <sighs> Conclusion, like you, you like it in the end. The slow life, the the community aspect, the all that. But you also liked it because you're you were you know you were the rich guy. You didn't you didn't have to go and fish and 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 so on. So I I think like taking all those aspects into consideration, you know, would you would you say that after all they have a better life? Than we are, you know, with all those problems and all those, you know, issues that we mentioned, you know, poverty, lack of money. But then again, you don't, you don't need that much money if you live in of the lake, or you know, maybe not in this place, but in general, in in those communities, you know, like many years ago, I was in Guinea-Bissau, and people living there for like you know three dollars a month or something like that. But then they don't need. They don't have a Tesco to go and spend money, so they like they go and hunt a pig and right. So overall, would you would you say that in some way they have a better life quality? Or the drawbacks and the lack of mm-hmm. um medical support and everything else is so severe that maybe uh, after all we have a better lives even though they're like so fast and so we're getting bombarded with all the things like wh- what's what's your like a conclusion of these two lifestyles yeah, or comparison?
2: good,
1: good question I mean, yeah where would you rather be born there or here? i'd rather be born here i think i think you know the, the risk they have of a dying themselves before they're one or five and then at least one of their kids dying at some point is so much higher than it is here, and that must be. I mean, it is obviously absolutely devastating to lose a kid, or um, and and getting sick. So that these are massive setbacks. Not getting very well educated, not being able to get a satisfying job or fulfilling job. I mean, there's fulfilment in farming and fishing and things like that, but a lot of people are just kind of grunts in those jobs. That really sort of low level. Um, no, not really using their skills. So if you've got skills and a brain, you don't really have the um, opportunity to use it to the full and to really flourish. Um, So I think that, and people live less long, which is obviously a bad thing and obviously a much better thing here that you live longer and your kids are pretty much guaranteed to reach adulthood. Um, And if you have a setback in countries like Britain, you uh, you lose your job, you can get some support from the government, which they can't. Um, And in retirement, you you get some pension, which they don't, they have to rely on um, their kids if they're still around Um, or they're very poor. I think we've definitely lost a lot though compared them. I mean, when I go to Hassani's house, there are always people sitting with him chatting. And you know, when I go to a friend's house here, there's never anybody or our house, there's never anybody sitting. There. So they've, they've got big sort of social support networks around them. But those support networks can only really provide psychological support rather than actual financial because they haven't got any money either. So they couldn't really help you out with a health problem, for example. But one of our neighbours uh, the one who died of Bilharzia, his funeral happened while we were there, and it went on for about 10 days, and there was hundreds of people coming to this funeral, people he knew, and they were each bringing a little gift, which might be, as you know, it might be um, some food or it might be a couple of sticks of firewood for the really poor um, to use to cook the food. There. And they stay there for days on end, and, and the support his wife, um, his widow, must, had from them was incredible and much more than you'd get here here you get a quick funeral, 30 minutes, you're out. Um, but, yeah, I, think, I do think we've lost a lot in our individualistic approach versus their kind of communal approach. But I just think the setbacks that they risk are too great to say that their lives are better than ours.
0: Would it be fair to say, and, and was, was that your impression that everything would be okay if, if, if we, in terms of like a you know rich North uh, people, white people, get involved? Was that was that? A, do you think that they they would ended up with similar problems, or was it like this initial contact of two different cultures, or or really two different cultures with a different level of development was the was the beginning of the problems that are happening to this day?
1: Yeah, it's it's arguable that it was a very different level of development. I mean, parts of Africa were very well developed before um, Europe got into contact with them. So it's not like we were well advanced. We were in terms of weaponry, for example, but not in, in other ways. Um, you know, they had complex kingdoms and complex um, communities. Uh, I think, yeah, they would definitely have been better off if we hadn't colonised them and if we hadn't enslaved them. Definitely. There's no, absolutely no question about that. Um, and they would have developed at their own pace, but countries develop at different paces. You know, there are different levels of development even within Europe today. You know, some countries are more advanced in different ways than others. So they would have... Carried on developing at their own pace. It may have been slower. It may have been faster. You, you, you can't. You don't know. And they have some difficulties there that we don't have in terms of the, crop, the tropical climate and its effect on uh, health, for example. So it's more dangerous to be brought up in a tropical climate than it is in a temperate climate in terms of your likelihood of, of survival. So there's disadvantages in that way. But the soil's good. You know, it's a very fertile place. Um, a lot of Africa, and uh, yeah, has has a lot of its na- of natural uh, resources and mineral. Resources, so yeah, I think contact with us certainly distorted m- most of Africa's development, hmm. and continues to. I think.
0: Look, um, overall, you know the the the, the book is about the very serious situations, and the the listeners and viewers already know that this is this is um, not like a super optimistic book, but. At the same time, you know, when I was reading, I I, I I was aware of reading about this some serious heavy stuff, but it it wasn't daunting. It wasn't like a super depressing. So I think you, you did a really good job on on um, describing the the you know your your firsthand experiences. And I want to finish off with a maybe a bit optimistic. <laughs> Um, part from the end of the book, uh, although I always say that this is not the optimism we we need, it's the optimism we deserve sort of thing. The disappearance of so many Nile perch from the lake has eased the predatory pressure on other fish. In the last few years, the decline of fish stock has decelerated. And to the surprise of scientists, cichlids, species that were long thought extinct, have begun to reappear in nets. To survive, the depredations of the sangara, and to survive the eutropication of the waters, cichlids have had to adapt. Some evolved stronger fins to enable them to dodge the perch's lunge. Others change their diet, rooting for food in areas that perch couldn't reach, or hybridized with other cichlids, collapsing two species into one. The orange-tailed species, this is a uh, Latin name which I'm not going to try to pronounce, responded to the increased murkiness by switching its diet from zooplankton, which are small and translucent, to more visible prey, such as shrimps and snails. This required it to hunt on the lake bed instead of the surface, an oxygen-scarce environment where it would need stronger respiratory apparatus. To overcome this difficulty, its gill size expanded by two-thirds in just 20 years. Its mouth grew bigger too, to accommodate larger prey. While its eyes, no longer so important, shrank to compensate. In the late nineteen eighties, this finger sized fish has considered extinct, but so rapid has been its resurrection that today it is not considered endangered. It's 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 a fantastic, you know, like an optimistic passage that says like nature is really resilient and it really finds its way, and that's a common theme when you when you uh read about regions that you know they're just left alone for for various reasons the, the nature rebounds but you know you you wrote this uh, th- this is a situation for from a few years ago tell me like wh- two parts question like how the situation looks like right now and how do you see this unfolding in the future so what do you think what is the future for ukurewe and what is the future for lake victoria and and for people
1: well i would say it depends i mean it depends on whether they can sort it out i mean it's as you say nature's very resilient the lake could easily rebound quite quickly um it's a very fertile potentially a very fertile lake so if you ban factories from polluting the lake and fish factories from polluting the lake I think that um, you know that's going to have an impact for example and if you can find ways of doing of introducing sustainable fishing like they were before the British introduced the flax gill nets that was a sustainable fishing uh, method and uh, fishing model if you can find ways to reintroduce that probably by asking local people how they think it should be done rather than just imposing it from the top down as the World Bank does for example um, then then there's hope. I don't think it's a hopeless situation because nature is so resilient. They haven't destroyed, the lake isn't totally destroyed like some lakes, are, like the Aral Sea and things like that. You know, there's there's and Lake Chad to some extent. Um, there is potential for it to rebound. At the moment, there's not, I mean, there's a few signs of that in the cichlids, but still the stocks of Nile Perch are right down. Um, and when I, when I went to the market in Wanza in February, there were, they were selling catfish there. And I said, oh, where are these catfish from? Um, and he said uh, they're from Tabora, which is in the centre of Tanzania, where there are no lakes. They were from fish farms in Tabora. Catfish used to be abundant in Lake Victoria, but now there's now they're having to import them to Lake Victoria from somewhere where there isn't even a lake. Um, so I think things things are still things are still quite bad. But and a lot of people are getting away from the lake and moving to the big cities um, and from airway as well. And lots of people want to just leave the island because there are some there are more earning opportunities in in big cities in Africa than there are on little rural islands but yeah I think with some
2: sensitive management that involves local people much more than it has in the past which has been
1: hardly at all and with governments that have the will to solve the problem rather than just still raking off money and profits from it there's hope and the hope lies in nature's resilience and people's resilience I and mean, these people have been living on for a long time despite this boom and they're still going and they're still bringing up families a lot of them a lot of them have left admittedly but some of them are hanging on and showing incredible resilience and one other sorry one other thing that i didn't mention about the um quality of life there is that the kids have a brilliant life compared to kids in europe they have all these other kids around um great fun and they you know their parents let them go off and play because they trust the older kids to look after the younger kids and they just have when they're not in school they have fantastic time and loads of fun so I think the quality of life for kids there they don't get sick is better than it is here and they're not glued to their phones the whole time um, and addicted to social media and they don't have any of that pressure and they come out quite well a lot of them quite well rounded as a consequence so yeah it's not as you say it's not all doom and gloom um because nature and people are very resilient just the higher up people who need to get their act together
0: so these are wise words, Mark. Um, folks, the savior fish: life and death on Africa's greatest lake. Uh, available anywhere, and also in the link in the description of this show, and on my website. Uh, go and buy the book. It's a brilliant book; you won't regret it. Mark, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And um, are you going to write another book uh, from you know your other trips?
1: Possibly. I wrote one before about West Africa, which included a, a section on Guinea-Bissau. In fact. Oh, um, lovely. Yeah, What's we the, the title? I said so The Ringtone and the Drum. Okay. So it was about Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone. So, so that right. was... Yeah, I, put
0: that one, I put that one on the list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. appreciate your time.
1: Thanks a lot, Tommy.